Hey there, I'm Joanne Tambrakis, and this is Marketing, Mindfulness, and Martinis. Unfiltered conversations, or as I like to say, opinions shaken, not stirred, on what's changing and what's not in business and in life as we enter into the next normal. So pour yourself your beverage of choice, and let's get to it. My guest today is a self-described, and I quote, shameful marketing shill, having spent way too much time on Madison Avenue and inside holding company agency networks around the globe, end quote. He has worked for such notables, including Wonderman, Y&R, Agency Pure, and his own consultancy, Free Radicals. He calls himself a practitioner adjunct teaching marketing at both NYU and the Katz School at Yeshiva University, and he also serves as the director of consulting for the YU Innovation Lab. He has now added author to his list of accomplishments, having just published The Big Leap and Ethics of Insight, Volume 1, which we will talk about today. Please welcome my colleague and my good friend, Tom Kennan, to the podcast. Joanne, what a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for asking me. Uh, I'm, I'm delighted to have you, and I have so much to ask you. And as it always is when a guest is also my friend, I, I want to stay on track. But before we get started, I always like to start with this first question, which is, where are you from? I am actually from the New York area. I grew up uh, in Peekskill in Westchester on the other side, the wrong side of the Westchester tracks, and uh, always wanted to be a New York City kid. And uh, didn't get a chance to do that until I was an adult. So I've li been living in and out of uh, New York City, mostly a West Side guy. But uh, in the last seven, eight years here in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. So I'm from the New York area, but I've I've lived in London and I've lived in San Francisco and I've lived in D.C. And I've lived, you know, in, in of all places, Montclair, New Jersey. So um <laughs> My heart, my heart is here in New York, but I'm I'm moving to Maine. I think I told you that. So I don't know if your listeners give a damn about that, but the woods of Maine call me and my bride. There you go. Then your bride. Well, I'm sure we'll get to that in a little bit at some point in this podcast. So you have had a long and successful career in marketing. And in fact, you wrote that you had to do something in the way of fixing the world. I spent too much of my career breaking. Is that what inspired you to write the book? And, and can you talk about that? Yes, yes. In fact, I had um, I had sort of an epiphany um, probably three or four years ago, um, when I kept losing arguments with colleagues and with uh, clients um, about what is to be done when it comes to activating insight and in the, in the service of business value. I always like to say to to anybody who will listen, that every brief is a business brief. The only reason people ever, ever write checks for the marketing department or agency is because they think they have to. They think that that is the sole formula for increasing enough brand awareness and product awareness to get and keep customers. So every brief is essentially, how do we drive the business? And um, for many, many, many years, I was doing as I was told. And I assumed that it was about impressions and it was about some sort of awareness or it was about creating fame. And about four or five years ago, I began to say, well, wait a minute, maybe it's about something else. And maybe it's about you know, honoring, you know, the human condition a little bit first, instead of blasting them with interruptive and surveillance advertising. 
And I was told to get back in my lane, Cannon. <laughs> and so I decided over a period of time to try to see if I could fix a little bit what me and my colleagues and in my industry had been breaking for so many generations. And so um, about a year and a half ago, um, had been in discussions to create a sort of an ethics lab with some partners. And uh, it turned out that uh, they balked. And I said, okay, well, I think I better do this on my own. So I decided to write a book. And the book was meant as an instruction, you know, sort of uh, a set for there's 14 insights. Each one of them, I think, suggests a sort of a little bit of a blueprint for how to activate really, really, really deep human insight in the service of creating value rather than extracting it. And so there, that's, that's the story thus far. And that's where, where we are today working, as you said, on the volume two, volume one came out in May. And I'm, my goal is to spend the next four, five, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years teaching it. Oh, so that was the next, my next question. Who did you write the book for? Is it written for the industry itself, practitioners, or is it written for students, um, yeah, Learning in fact, it's a, it's a it's a very good question, and, and in fact, I think the audience for whom I developed it for has evolved from the moment I decided to write it to the moment I began to get ready to publish it, and to where I am today, working on its next iteration or its second volume, because originally it was for clients. I mean, it was for brands. It was for business owners. It was for CMOs. It was for CEOs. In fact, it was for CFOs who hate writing those checks to marketing because I thought it was it was offering an, a, a different way through. You mentioned, you know, sort of, uh, you know, advertising being dead. It's not dead. I'm trying to kill it, Joanne. Okay. So very specific. I know. I know. You're ahead, of your, you're ahead of where we're going with this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so what has happened though in the interim is I realized that as I began to research and develop um, the the insights, each each chapter, the 14 chapters of volume one is an insight with a specific set of research associated with exploring it and how to get to it and some cases supporting what might be done with it and some ideas. All of a sudden I realized that this was more, this is as much as an instruction set for living or teaching or parenting or arting as it was for businessing. So I realized then that this was more than just about better marketing. It was about sort of a better capitalism. And so, yeah, I end up uh, assuming my audience now to be much broader than I ever would have imagined in the beginning. Okay, that's a lot. So you said the world is diminished by the vast majority of extractive business behavior. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Well, you know, I, I have this discussion again. I'm, I'm, I'm having it right now with some very senior uh, colleagues inside of one of the large uh, holding company networks about, you know, what is to be done? What is what is the future of, of marketing look like? And and I can't help but think that it has to be a response to the, the literally trillions of dollars and, and euro and sterling and WAM that have been pumped into the surveillance advertising platforms over the last eight, nine, 10, 12 years. It has to understand that that has been an extraordinarily extractive act 
on the per, on, on the part of brands, you know, you, you know, dumping all that money into this kind of what we can only imagine to be sort of surveillance-based advertising, based upon you know Baidu and 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 Alibaba and Tencent and Google and Facebook and and, and Amazon and Apple, all monetizing human attention, and so that in and of itself is 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 duplicitous and violent and extractive because they said okay here you go here's free search here's free video here's free document storage here's free all these different services and all we ask in return is for your attention mm-hmm. and they've monetized our attention in the form of hijacking all sorts of human signal and data and um i would have to say that 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 is that that's a an essentially bankrupt idea. But you know, make no mistake. The the reason I wrote the book is because I've been losing the argument for the last three or four years about <laughs> doing something different. There you go, and you're doing something to try and change that, which I admire greatly. Mm-hmm. So this this opens up very personally, and the lesson your own personal journey has taught you. Can can you touch on that a little bit? Yeah. The um. My journey into uh, sobriety, I start the book, and I had no idea I was actually going to do this when I set out when I you know, decided to begin to write the, the, the introduction and then the first chapter. But I realized that the only way I could have come to this idea that I had been, uh, me and, and, and my industry and, and colleagues and me personally had been not just not doing my part to make a better world, but literally, you know, working against it in the form of the kinds of things that I was recommending to myself, my colleagues, and my clients as, as marketing, was was based upon this violence and this extractive and this fame-based marketing. And so I realized all of a sudden that what happened to me, um, and I was on Madison Avenue when I got sober and I first got sober and I start the book with the story of down, walking down the stairs of St. Agnes's Church on 43rd Street where there was a, a lunch bunch meeting. It's still there, by the way. And um, and every single day for the first year of my sobriety, um, 13 years ago, this coming January, I would sit there and uh, listen to the stories of other drunks and every once in a while raise my hand and tell mine. And what I realized as I began to tell this story was that that it wasn't an act of contrition. It was an act of admission and an act of what I can only begin to imagine as a completely, you know, a reset of life itself that was based upon a moment of of just naked humility. Anybody who's ever been through any kind of program knows that the, the first and most terrible step is this naked humble stating of weakness and failure and boy does that clarify things and so that i realized then that that was i never would have wrote this book without that personal moment and and it because it's given me such an an understanding of what now i begin to introduce this text into my because i'm now teaching it in all my courses i work chapters from volume one and and start to trial chapters from volume two into my coursework and in each case, the introduction is basically a reflection of those three sort of of, of 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 epiphanies that I came to in that act of understanding, you know, walking down those steps into that AA meeting 13 and a half years ago, which was this idea of humility, this idea of deep, 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 deep empathy, and this this sense. That I've I've struggled, and I finally landed on a word that may not make my, 
much sense to many people until they hear my, my, my argument, which is this idea of grace. And I think this is the new brief. Well, can you can you talk more about that? Because I think it's rather interesting. So humility, what, what did I get? Humility, empathy, and grace. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And because all you have to do is imagine every single CEO you've ever worked for or reported to or read about in the, in, in the business press, and you, <laughs> with very rare exception, it'd be almost impossible to imagine. Those three characteristics of being, you know, you know, the <laughs> front of house, and I think that that. So again, you know, if anything, the, you know, it's it. This is a direct counter to the culture of business, the culture of marketing, and the culture of brand building that I've just spent thirty-five plus years in, which is to say to reset. And anybody who wants to work with me, I'll try to find the insights to develop briefs and strategies that serve this purpose. But I think that the thing that will that creates the most immense competitive advantage for businesses in any category today is if you show up acting as this humble empath with a sense of 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 grace about you, I think that that will trump any kind of investment and in impression-based advertising that your competitors might imagine. I love it. I love it. Okay, this takes me to my next question rather beautifully, I think. So in there, you talk about this idea of insights whispering. In fact, I think you call yourself an insight whisperer. And, and I want you to talk about that because I think um, in this world that we're living in, which is so... I hate the word data-driven. It just makes me nuts. I prefer data-informed because I think the data personally by itself means absolutely nothing, which I'm guessing is what you mean by the insights. But I, I want to just clarify that because I think a lot of people see the data and they think that's enough, but it's not the data itself, but it's the insights that we get from that, at least in my opinion. So can you talk about yeah. the, how you view this? Or maybe we're in agreement, maybe we're not, but... Yeah, I bet we are. And 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 to to me, um, it's 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 probably the most important question to explore. I think what is um, it's not just because I'm a strategy guy that that I say this, but I've just spent thirty forty years trying to figure out insight and using many types of research to get there, right? Whether it's, as, as you refer to, which almost is like sort of the back end of the human you know, data experience, which is response analytics, right? Where the data can tell us what people like or buy or want or have bought or where they visit or what they search for, things. There is certainly insight inside that data. And there's insight, you know, traditionally mild, I would, I would say superficial insight, in the front end data of demographics and that we get from research, that we get from quant, and we get from numerical assignment of desire and preference and, and behavior and choice making when we send people surveys. And one of the things that I recognize about nine, 10 years ago, which was that first of all, there was two, there, fresh insight was required. And, and second of all, that traditional research was not designed to give us fresh insight. And, and so I realized that these emergent methodologies, these observational research methodologies like um, uh, digital ethnography, which we call deep listening or social listening, um, and uh, video and mobile ethnography and traditional ethnography were never meant to, you know, 
presume that we knew anything until we began our, you know, observing. And um, and when I realized that that in between the data that you collect anecdotally and qualitatively through observational ethnographic research, in between those words and in, in, in amongst that discourse and in those gestures, in those sounds and in those blinks and in those touching of the hair and in those hesitations and into, in, in, the, in the language of, of, of recommendation and the language of admonition and the language of confusion and the language of love was to be found hiding in there deep, deep insight into human desire. And to me, all of a sudden, the, the light bulb went off for me where I realized that, that, that our job as strategists, as marketers, as, as, as I'm now beginning to, to assign the brief better capitalists, was to, to leverage this kind of observational research in order to, to probe deeply into the heart of human desire and name it. And that's the insight. And therefore, what we do with that insight, and this is where I think the fundamental shift happens, is that in the form of advertising for you know 90 years, we've been doing that. We've been using mostly quantitative research to name desire in the form of insight. And we've been using that insight to stimulate desire in the form of advertising. And I believe that the brief is completely 180 degrees the opposite now. And the brief is to use that insight to serve desire. And that, to me, entails an extraordinarily refreshing way for a business to show up in the form of their marketing, which is humble, which is empathetic, and which I believe is, is, is imminently embraceable because of its grace and its openness. And, it's, and it's, this is how I believe insights become literally generative. You really have thought this whole thing out, my friend, I'll tell you that. You call this 14 rollicking, profane chapters, I love that word, as insights each meant to inspire. Um, and the unifying principle, and you talked about this just now, is that a better capitalism is possible. So I, I'm assuming that, I don't know, you tell me. Are you, I, I've always considered myself a capitalist. However, I think that it's a little broken myself. Uh, it needs maybe more than a little broken. But um, can, you, can you talk about that? Um, because I think, yeah. I think I, I don't think you're alone in wanting, in wanting to improve upon capitalism as opposed to throwing the baby out with the bathwater. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's a really, 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 really uh, um, good question. And, 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 um, and here's the thing, part of my personal journey also in the last, you know, whatever, 45, six years or so has been moving from one side of the, well, from one side, from one side of the left spectrum to beyond left. And, and so in my, you know, in, in, you know, when I'm, when I'm off the clock in the last four or five, six years, I've been an you know, active uh, explorer of, of mutual aid and, 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 and anarchist community here in New York and around the world. And um, I know that most people think of that as bomb throwers and things like that. Well, it ain't. It's about love and mutual aid and horizontalism. But what I have tried to do in the last seven, eight, nine, ten, because I am a capitalist, just like you, Joanne, and I, and I imagine like 99% of all your listeners, what I have tried to do in the last maybe five, six, seven years of my work is to in better inflect the, the, those levels of mutual aid and horizontalism and and uh, non-hierarchical um, value making 
into my businessing. And, uh, and that comes to the businessing of my clients when it comes to the research and the work and the briefs and the strategies I develop for them, with them. So long way to go to say, um, I, I have a fundamental critique that says that almost all capitalism is ultimately unsustainable, especially if all you got to do is look around and see what, you know, Guterres, uh, the Secretary General of the UN said last week in New York, which is basically, you know what, people? We're fucked. And he didn't quite use those words. I don't know if that gets bleeped out on on, on your awesome no, podcast. No, it, it, it doesn't. But, it does not. We don't bleep out here. <laughs> I, 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 I'm subtweeting him here, but I do believe that that Almost all of us have gotten to a recognition and a point where we think that the current the current state cannot sustain. And so ultimately, I believe in a prefigurative politics and an anarchic politics that says, let's start acting now like the world's a better place. In my business world, in my consulting world, in my teaching world, I have chosen to begin to do that work in such a way that says maybe on the way to whatever's coming, because boy, I hope there's another answer besides the way that state and capitalism have, have merged in the last 30, 40 years under the neoliberal umbrella. But on the way to that journey, hopefully, for my grandkids and their, and their grandkids, is maybe a better capitalism is possible. And I believe that, that, that this creates an entirely different world of products, of services, of value making. And in fact, the thing that I, I challenge my students and myself and my colleagues with is not just to make, you know, is, is if, if insights are generative, Joanne, what I believe is that the job of our marketing itself is to create value in the world. And the only way I think that happens is, is if it shows up as a genuine expression of the business itself. Many of my colleagues will say this is the difference between shareholder capitalism and stakeholder capitalism, because mm-hmm. stakeholder capitalism is the kind of capitalism that I think that's practiced by companies like um, uh, Patagonia is mm-hmm. one of the cases that I, yes. I keep trying to you know add to my, my, my list of cases of businesses who are currently doing this, and they're rare and they're few. But, you know, you look at Yvonne Schwinard, the founder of that, and, you know, very selfishly, he decided to make a living making stuff for people that shared his passion for the world mm-hmm. and, and, and exploring and very quickly, he realized that 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 if 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 this world wasn't saved, he wouldn't have much enjoyment, and he wouldn't have any more customers. <laughs> and so, the the thing about better capitalism, it, it, this is not necessarily an act of unselfish love. This is an act of preservation of a world that we want to imagine for ourselves and our stakeholders enjoying value together. And so, all of the different marketing. Examples I come up with in my teaching cases and in, in the books um, that have to do with Patagonia are not advertising. They're not even marketing. They're just examples of things that they've done that people have said, wait a minute, did you just print in on the flip side of one of your labels in your cargo pants that, you know, vote the bastards out? Did you just do, 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 do <laughs> is that you? Did, did you just, did you just, you know, fire all of your, your, your investment bank and energy partners to so they can't wear co-branded you know fleece vests anymore on, on their jobs and going to wall street and and that to me is the new marketing this new better capitalism this new better business behavior and, and my, my claim is you need fresh insights to get there 
Yeah, no, I mean it's 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 a uh, t- it's your take if I'm hearing this right on what this you know it's a very common term being used now this conscious conscious capitalism conscious marketing um, mm-hmm. how are we being more conscious and I think that as I mean we both teach so we see the generations coming up and you can see where it's been there with especially the younger millennials but certainly with Gen Z that these things are important to them it's not just what the product is but how is that business doing business. And I and I I agree with what you said earlier because to me marketing is business. I, I've never seen the, the the differentiation. They're all kind of one one in the same in in, in that respect. So I think that um, I think you're bringing up some really important points. All right, so we have to get to this question because um, as much as I want to believe that advertising is dead, and God knows I made my earned my living and a very good living for many years selling that stuff. Um, you have said that we're in this post-advertising world, and, and I think you've spoken to that already. But I, I'm still, I, I just, I'm still not so. I think I'm still not so sure it's possible. I mean, every time we turn around, someone else is figuring out. When I think that we're at the end of it, we're figuring out a different way to run ads here and run ads here to the point of switching back from where we had moved from this push philosophy of marketing to pull that we're doing a lot more pushing, just using different tools now. So you, you speak to that now. I'm, I'm off of my little soapbox here. Well, no, I mean, so I, I think that what you're raising is, 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 is the fundamental question is, is what is to be done? You know, if in fact businesses, um, will continue to operate uh, with the, the mandate and the imperative to get and keep customers at some sort of, you know, efficient and allowable cost to justify them you know, making stuff. Um, then the question is, well, how do we do that? How do we efficiently get and keep customers? And many of my colleagues over the years and yours too on Madison Avenue and Global Madison Avenue and, and New York Madison Avenue have been convinced that you build brands that matter to people to very specific people and that they, 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 and it's not just about recall and fame and awareness. It's about meaning. And so the vast majority of, of marketing, um, you know, thoughtfully could be reinvested in building those brands. But I don't think, and this is where probably we, 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 we diverge from each other's position on what happens next. I just don't think advertising has anything to do with representing meaning. I think meaning is only ever my understanding, my sensation, my impression of a felt emotion or a felt moment of of value or recognition or epiphanies about a business. That business seems to mean something different. Patagonia seems to mean something different from North Face. Would you agree? Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. How did that happen? <laughs> How did Patagonia end up meaning something different, and I think more special and deep, to a certain person than North Face? I don't think it happened with advertising. Well, yes and no. I will yes and no on this because I think it comes from, again, how the company operates and how they present themselves, but they are advertising that that perception as well. They're not sitting there and never running an ad in, we used to run ads in magazines. For some reason, I can see Patagonia there. They're not not advertising on television when they need to. They're not not using social media to, to, to promote their ideals, but they have different ideals. 
and that message is out there. And they may not cool. be, they're not doing it in a, hey, come into Patagonia because we're having a sale this weekend. And I, I don't see a lot of that. I see much more of what you're talking about is that deeper level. So so I think it's a yes yeah, and. Yeah. Well, without a doubt. In fact, I have a side by side in in, in in the book comparing literally Patagonia with North Face and, 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 you know, uh, it's my book and my chapter, I get to pick the comparison. <laughs> so I picked this, that at the time I looked around and I saw, and this is about a year and a half ago, a, a highly promoted um, campaign by North Face, which was unplug. And it was about these, you know, these wonderful sort of, you know, Benetton, you know, mixed, um, you know, 15, 20 years after Benetton famously began to mix non-white people into their advertising, which at the time, if you remember, was, was very cutting edge, was very cutting impactful, edge, right? Like, why would you not have all white people in your commercials? I don't get this. What's going on? Um but anyway, uh, unplug a campaign about a year and a half, two years ago from North Face, and it was highly, highly, highly supported by by paid media and social, especially. And they had, you know, they had cut downs of their 60s and 120s of 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 this wildly diverse crowd of of you know sort of you know, late 20, early 30 ish. Um, obviously happy, obviously enjoyable on upper scale people who were throwing it all away and unplugging for the weekend and going out into nature and unplugging from devices or unplugging from the internet or unplugging from the, the, the pressures of the urban world and just, just letting go. And side by side to that, I compare um, a campaign that I saw on, I, I, I subscribe, I think you do too, um, to a gazillion um Emails. Mm -hmm. You know, I've been. Yes, I'm, I do. You know, I'm in the world, so I'm always trying to find out what people are doing with email. Even back, you know, even now, when email is mostly bad spam, but you know, CRM programs and all sorts of recontact and things like that. I'm curious. So I get my. Uh, this is almost. This might be exactly three summers ago, or three Septembers ago. In fact, it's probably exactly three years ago. I get my Tuesday weekly CRM from Patagonia, and lo and behold, what it is is an invitation that is about as opposite from unplug as you can get. Which is a call to arms, a call to 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 just say no. And again, this is pre-COVID, just by a couple of months. And this is at the at, you know at the ascendancy of world awareness um, about the climate catastrophe um, and and Greta Thunberg's message. And so they literally they they sent they spent their typical Tuesday CRM email on on the and the, the countless you know tens and hundreds of thousands of other people who sub opt in on saying. The time is now. Make the make the move. And it was a link to a website they set up where you could go in and search your zip code and find a meetup and meet people so that you could go out in time for Friday to protest in front of your local city hall, your your parliament or your White House. And this was to me almost the exact opposite of unplug. So to me, that's an example of how one brand decides to invest in a completely different, more meaningful marketing. It is almost the opposite of anything that an advertising, uh, advertising can do to try to create this, again, to stimulate desire rather than to serve it. And I think that that's a, that's a good like case side by side. I like that. I like the comparison, serve as opposed to um, stimulate. That, that, that definitely is a good comparison. Okay, a couple of more questions before we finish up, because I think you and I could talk for forever. Um, what, what, do you hope, what, is, what do you hope people take away from this book? Boy, it's, it's, it, 
it's a fantastic question. I, I think um, I try. I try to ask I think, questions. I think it's it because it, it, ultimately all of this stuff, anything we do is about what do you want to have happen. I really would, and I tell my students this. I I send them out selfishly, like I said in the beginning. I mean, and I mean it. You know, I, I'm trying. This is this is an act of of contrition in a way, but it's also an act of remediation. I really do want to see if I can fix some of the shit I've broken in the past for 35 <laughs> years of my career. So, what I'd like to see happen is that this becomes a bit of a of a battle cry or a handbook for for the next generation of marketers. And I'm not just talking about people who go into marketing. I'm talking about business owners. I'm talking about you know. The, the shareholders. I'm talking about you know governments. I'm talking about you know anybody who has anything to say or do about what is to be done in the world of humans. So I would love to have see happen is that because I think what's happening right now is people are getting it. People are getting how manipulated we are. People are getting how abused we are by the by the platforms. People are getting it. And you know, in Europe, it's and in California, you know, Facebook and Twitter, and all they're all being sued, and they're all being fined, and they're all, they will be broken up. And if you look at uh, Apple's most recent, you know, ploy last year to, to shut out Facebook from its media ecosystem under the guise of, of privacy, even people get that how cynical and self-serving that is. So the, I think that clock is ticking for these platforms. I think the clock is clearly ticking for the planet itself. And I think people are going to begin to embrace different pathways towards making meaning in their own worlds. And this is going to include CEOs and CFOs and CMOs. So what I'd like to see happen is enough people say, look, we're not getting the answers that we think we need. So maybe this new generation of marketers, this new generation of entrepreneurs, this new generation of, of, of business managers might have some better ideas. So I'm trying to arm them with some different ways of thinking about the world, different ways of thinking about creating value in the world so that they can go in there and find some fresh insight and do something meaningful with it. That's what I'd like to see happen. All right. Good answer. Good answer. Good question. Good answer. <laughs> um, so you obviously, I just want to, one question about the pandemic and then I do a little lightning round here. So we're all, I think we're out of it. I don't know. I keep thinking we're out of it. And then I, I worry sometimes that it's not completely done. You obviously managed to write a book during the pandemic. How else have you adapted? I mean, you're, and you move into Vermont. Mm-hmm. Maine, Did I say Maine? Maine? I'm sorry, Vermont, Maine. Mid-coast see, see how, Maine. See, you, yes, see how, yes, you see see what a New Yorker I am. It's like, oh, it's, it's something up there. I don't know which state it is up at the top. For years, <laughs> I, I really, I meld them as, as well in my mind. Um, the, yeah, oh boy, the pandemic. Um, you know, the interesting thing about the pandemic is it created at, at a moment, at one single moment, a truly global consciousness of connectedness. I, I really do believe that one of the things it did, <laughs> for better or for worse, boy, did it bring us together. And because all of a sudden we realized as it was sweeping, as it began to pray, I remember the, the earliest days and weeks we were seeing these these this footage of, of, of Italian hospitals and, and villages and, and coffins and thinking, well, Good thing that's not here. And within weeks, you know, we were all hiding. And here in Bed-Stuy, I remember saying to my, my kids that live with me here, I said, look, we're going to take this two-week plan at a time. And the next two-week plan is to stay the fuck alive. And I'm going <laughs> to go out and do our laundry, and I'm going to do the shopping, and I'm going to clean everything before we, I bring it in the house. I'm going to Anyway, I think we all did this. And we all thought, wow, I can't wait till this. We made it. We made it. And some of us got sick. Some of us died. And a lot of us, and if anyone listening right now, made it at least so far. I think that 
the problem with 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 uh, with, with the you know what we call, some people call late stage capitalism and it's in, it's it's complete integration into into state is that it couldn't afford to protect its people any longer and it just said look let's all get back to work you know the 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 deaths be damned and that's where we are right now so you know we can't wish it away and we can't um, apparently vaccine it away. So it will be with us forever. But I think what it has done for some, for many, it has given us a chance at least to reflect of how connected we are. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, hopefully, a chance to understand that the powers that be that govern our lives, whether those are the businesses or the governments or the banks or whatever, don't ultimately have our best interests in mind. So I think it creates, and one of the chapters I'm working right now in volume two is called, We're All Together Out Here. And it's probably the longest chapter and the most, you know, uh, researched one I've I've worked on so far across the two volumes, and I'm hopeful that it turns out into a great exploration of of this question. And I never even thought about it in the context of, of of what we learned from from COVID and pandemic, but I think the idea that we emerge from this, Joanne, is that we our, our fate is our own, and shame on us if we don't seize it. Ooh, oh, Tom, what a great, what mm-hmm. a great statement that is. All right, I'm just going to switch and lighten it up a little bit here for uh, for a minute, because I always like to finish up with a little lightning round. Um, Favorite social network? Ah, well, I think the one that's got the the most potential promise for connecting people with value is up and coming. Uh, of course, it was bought by Microsoft, so the platforms will ruin it all. But Twitch, to me, is still is, is interesting right now. Um, okay. I think for, and this, you, you'll, you'll be shocked to hear me say this, the only uh, social network, I believe, where it's worth spending any amount of money on promotions or advertising seems to continue to be on, I can't believe I'm going to say this because, boy, there's nobody that despises Mark Zuckerberg more than than, than yours no. truly. Well, but maybe, I think, it may, it may uh, be me. <laughs> maybe me. <laughs> I'm not a fan Instagram, either. Instagram Instagram continues to offer very, very interesting tailored targeting. Now, of course, it's all based upon surveillance. They've, they're they listening. Their audio is always on. They know what we're talking about as well as what we're searching for as long as we're browsing. So it's, it's hor- hor- horribly intrusively surveilled. But um, I think if you're going to spend any amount of money on paid social, which I, my, my recommendation is to invest all of your social budgets in organic social. And I think when it comes down to that, the places where I think the most opportunity exists, and boy, do you have to be careful, are forums, are, are, are subreddits, are, um, depending on the category, they're health forums or parenting forums or subreddits. But I think that you have to show up humbly, you have to show up, and you have to show up empathetically, you have to show up with real deep grace if you're going to bust into someone's feed and say, hi, I'm from uh, Pfizer. Don't don't, don't don't blame me yet. I have something that you guys might be interested in. And you have to show up with value and you have to prove it one day mm-hmm. at a time humbly. No, and so right. that to me is probably where the organic budgets need to head. Okay. Something people would never guess about you. Uh, that I was an altar boy and a boy scout. Okay. Seriously. But I was an altar boy. I was an altar boy because I was originally, they, they told me I was supposed to be a priest. Which actually, that's probably the thing that you would never guess about me. Although, you know, standing my, my wife, my Jewish wife, my bride, she says, oh, my God, you would have made a great priest. And so I think she's right. Except, except for the fact, of, except for the fact, uh, the part about the fact that you couldn't get married and have children and all that other stuff that you have done. 
So. Exactly. <laughs> and that, my five kids, right? They would have been not here. Um, yeah. And, 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 and just as an aside to that, um, I was all said to be a priest because that's why I was an altar boy. And then I went to an eighth grade graduation party and made out with, if you're still out there, Ellen, thank you. Because for about 45 minutes, I kissed. I'd never kissed a girl before. And I went home that night and, and, and told my mom I couldn't go to minor seminary. And it was all <laughs> off. And he said, you're calling Father Regis in the morning oh, and God. telling him yourself. All right. A couple more. Um, <laughs> the last series that you binged. Aha. Well, I'm a latecomer. But over the summer, we literally watched all eight seasons of Game of Thrones. And and everyone was like, yeah, right. And But the curious thing about Game of Thrones and me might be this, is that almost everybody that Sandy and I told we were listening and watching uh, Game of Thrones said, oh, my God, oh, my God, I'm so jealous. We loved it. We loved it. Except the ending sucks. And so that's what we thought, heard from almost everybody. And we got to the ending and I absolutely loved it. And I realized two weeks, three weeks later, and this is just, this is just three weeks ago right now, I realized why. And it gets to one of the personal things I admitted earlier about anarchism. I realized now that the, and this is spoiler alert, sorry, anybody who hasn't seen them all, but I realized it's because the central character, Jon Snow, renounces patriarchy, renounces family, renounces blood, renounces rule, renounces kingdom, all for the sake of going north and hanging out with the free people. And uh, to me, boy, what an ending. That what was a great, an ending. great, great, great so, moral, ethical so, <laughs> ending. So I'm one of the few people who has never seen an episode of Game uh, of Thrones, nor oh. <laughs> nor do no, nor do I have any desire to, because cool. I just don't like that kind of the vi- the violence is just too much. But, yeah, it's awful. So it's okay. Uh, a food you can't live without? Uh, hummus. Ooh, I, that's a I good eat one. Hummus with carrots usually, shamefully, almost every single day. That's okay. It's not a bad thing. It's not a bad. It's no. very, very healthy. And what motivates you to get up in the morning? Um, I like to. I like to be. I like to be up before the sun. I mean, it sounds stupid. Um, and even back, you know, before I found St. Angus's, uh, you know, AA meeting in, in two thousand nine. Even during those dark days of my manic uh, pursuit of, of high. Um, I was always up five five thirty. So uh, what? Get, and I realized just recently, just probably this morning, last couple of days, I realized why is because I, I feel special, different, and, and more important when I, if I beat the sun. Oh, I love that. I love that. And by the way, congratulations on thirteen and a half years Thank of sobriety. Thank you. Um, and um, even though the podcast has martinis in it, you, there are non-alcoholic ones that you are available. I know, these days. listen, but I figured that's. The, but why not? You know, slip behind enemy lines. The, martin- <laughs> the martinis is a euphemism for the fun part because that is is really what it is. Although I do drink martinis because I I love it and I get it and I support it. There you go. Okay, so where um, can people find you online, and where can they find this book? Good question. I um. Uh, the link to the book is uh, uh, Kendall Hunt Publishing, and I can give you that um, link for folks. Um, I don't recall it right away, but is uh, the the Big Leap and Ethics of Insight Volume One and Kendall Hunt Publishing, and online you can find the very, 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 very um, uh, political me and cultural me 
and post-structuralist me, because I'm, I'm big down with uh, continental post-structural philosophy as well as we can talk about that our next time together um, <laughs> on uh, at T. Kennan on Twitter. But watch out, you know, content warning. It's um, it's 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 for it, it, it's, not, it's not for the grown. In fact, it's for the children. It really is. <laughs> Tell your kids. But it's uh, it's 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 decidedly um, uh, the, the cultural political me and um, more uh, legit. It's a uh, LinkedIn slash T H O M K E N N O N. Terrific. And I will put all of those links in the show notes. Thank you so much time for joining me today. Awesome. Joanne, an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening to Marketing Mindfulness and Martinis. If you liked what you heard, please share with your friends. Give us a rating on iTunes or Spotify so other people can find us and hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode. If you've got a question you'd like answered or a topic you'd like me to cover, please drop me a note. Info at joannetombrakis.com. And until next time, remember, whatever got you to where you are isn't enough to keep you there.